With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the mini break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, June 25th. And because it's a Thursday, that means we have another fantastic edition of our new series, Getting to the Point, our podcast episodes with our friends from Aerobar, focusing on fitness and the nutrition size of the sport. And if you've learned anything from our first four guests, you will have learned just how important both of those things are to reaching the upper echelons of the tennis world, you know, whether it be professional coach, former top 10 player Jay Berger, people like Michael Russell, Bjorn Fertangel, of course, sport uh, fitness director at the John McEnroe Academy. Richard John Menzing, uh, they've all preached how important it is to take those aspects of the game just as seriously as you take working on your forehand, your backhand, your serve, your net game, uh, because it, you know if your body's not right, you're just not going to get the best out of your tennis game. And of course, our friends at Aerobar are trying to help everyone get the best out of their tennis game by offering the only tennis-specific uh, energy bar out there. And I say it repeatedly when I talk about our friends at Aerobar, but seriously, I have always been a guy who, unless I'm sleeping in and, you know, then waking up at 11, going to work out and making a Sunday brunch out of the deal, I just can't eat that much food in the morning. But I do need something in my stomach to get my day going. And I've been so fortunate to get to turn to our friends at Aerobar. Uh, for my morning meal. You know, it's just a great energy bar. I know I'm putting good ingredients in my body. I also know their chocolate chip and cinnamon honey oat bars taste delicious. Uh, And it's just the right start to my day. And even when I'm not playing tennis matches, again, I know nutrition-wise, I have gotten my day off to the sort of beginning it needs to if I want it to be successful. And we know uh, you will enjoy Aerobar, but we also, of course, trust the message from our friends Andrew Gullip, Mark Aerosmith, and the Aerobar team uh, that, again, their product, once you try it, you will enjoy it, but it will also take your nutrition, take your game, give you that sort of sustenance you need uh, to just get that extra 5% out of yourself on the court, uh, which is what we're all seeking when we go out there just to be that much better. And so, you know, that is why I have had so much fun partnering with our friends at our bar. It also helps, again, uh, how just how enjoyable uh, these episodes have been. So many great guests. And we have another spectacular guest for you all today on the show. He is the turn Tournament director of the boys 16s and 18s clay courts, a former three-time Kalamazoo champion himself, by the way, All-American at the University of Georgia, and now, of course, chairman of the Delray Open. I, of course, am talking about our guest, Ivan Barron, uh, who joins us on the show to not only talk about his own sensational, you know, junior career, professional career, but why he stayed involved in the game so long, and, you know, his from his various perspectives, seeing how important nutrition, health, 
fitness is uh, to so many, or are, I suppose, to so many different players, and how, you know, those who do take their off-court training seriously are able to get to the next level. Uh, We also, given, you know, uh, Ivan's experience, we had to talk to him about the current events going on, what it would be like to put on a tournament in the midst of a global pandemic, how he and the team at Delray are preparing to put on the 2021 event, and of course, his thoughts on, you know, coordinating amongst all the various tournaments and the ATP and the financial hit a global pandemic would have, you know, if you had to play event with no, uh, fans there, you know, that sort of consequence for an event the size of Delray Beach and similar events. It's a fascinating discussion. Really, again, we dive on all aspects of the game because he has succeeded. I didn't mention these other things in his accolades. You'll hear them shortly. A USDA Florida Hall of Famer, a guy who has really served all at all levels of the game. So it's a fascinating conversation. I know all of you listeners are going to enjoy. Uh, of course, before we get to that, just a couple of quick things, I suppose, uh, from our Cracked Racket side. One, uh, if you did not listen to yesterday's conversation we had with Bob Moran, tournament director for this weekend's Credit One Bank Invitational uh, in Charleston, the team women's event going on there, go listen to that conversation because, again, who is better to speak to uh, the ramifications. Who's better to speak to the precautions needed to execute an event right now on the WTA ATP Tour than two tournament directors we have in Ivan Barron and Bob Moran. So I think all of you listeners will really enjoy that episode, uh, both of these episodes, particularly given everything that's going on in the tennis world. I also want to say we are so excited here at Cracked Rackets to be heading down to Miami this week. And of course, we will be following social distancing, all of the protocol safety measures to ensure we are not a risk to ourselves, uh, our our risk, excuse me, to others, nor putting ourselves at risk. Uh, But we are so thrilled to go down to Miami for the Altic Steislinger Tennis Exhibition, J.C. Aragoni's eight-man event taking place in Miami starting next Monday. Uh, The field is spectacular. Hubie Hurtcatch, Riley Opelka, Stevie Johnson, Tennis Sandgren, Query, uh, Sam Query, uh, Mackie McDonald, Brandon Nakashima, and J.C. all taking part in the event. And we're going to be there for all of the actions. So we did a tournament draw selection show. All of you will be able to see later today. It's delightful. You know, JC, just such a great, just a great person to have in the game of tennis. Certainly good for its long-term growth. And it's going to be a really fun event. So uh, be on the lookout for all that content as well. Excuse me. I'm just so excited by it. But I just wanted to run you guys through those things, so be on the lookout for that, of course. You know, other podcasts right now, Rockin' and Rollin' Cracked Interviews this week, two college coaches, Ashley Fisher of USF, and then today, Ross Wilson, the head coach for the Iowa men's tennis team. Uh, both great conversations. Again, both guys who have seen all levels of tennis. Ross, a former standout at Ohio State. Ashley, former standout at TCU, and now, obviously, in their coaching careers as well. Uh, they've had success at unconventional stops. Uh, so, you know, we asked them how to tell us how they've had that sort of success, what goes into building a successful college team, how does a college team weather a global pandemic like we are all going through right now. Uh, so two great conversations. Of course, GSP was doubled up last week. Ben Rothenberg, Gil Gross joining me to talk about all of the storylines going on in the professional tennis world, the Adria Tour. Of course, Mark Lucero and I talked about that as well as Carousel and I earlier this week on the mini break. But lots of podcasts right now here rocking and rolling and at Cracked Rackets, so just wanted to bring all of you guys, make you aware of that. Of course, the reason we are able to have so many great conversations here at Cracked Rackets is because of the support we get day in, day out from our friends at Midwest Sports. And you know the deal. 
more than 20 years, they've served as one of the world's premier tennis equipment suppliers by offering a comprehensive selection of fast-shipping tennis supplies that few retailers can match. I mean, folks, you name it in the tennis world, they've got it on their website. And they've got the newest products as well. And maybe you don't know, with all the innovations going on in the game of tennis constantly, what will bring out your best? Well, the good news is their well-trained staff are intimately familiar with tennis equipment and can help you find that perfect racket, perfect shoe, or perfect clothing that is sure to put you ahead of the competition. Their selections of equipment are consistently first to market, and they pride themselves in stocking their warehouse with the newest products at the lowest prices. You can find all of these products, all of these prices, by going to their website, MidwestSports.com. You use our promo code CR15, 15% off your order, free two-day shipping on all orders, $75 or more, and best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. You'll also let them know that we sent you there, which we will greatly appreciate here at Cracked Rack. So go to MidwestSports.com. Use the promo code CR15. We are such fans of them. We ask that you give them a little support for all they do uh, for us as well. So MidwestSports.com, the promo code is CR15. By the way, for all of you, before we get into this getting to the point uh, conversation with our friends from Aerobar, you want to go get yourself some Aerobars, go to Aerobar.com. Use our promo code CRACKED15. You'll get 15% off. And folks, I'm telling you, you'll have found breakfast for the rest of your life because it just it's the right way way to start your day. I think that's the slogan I'm going to convince them to start working on. And speaking of which, the people I would be convincing, Mark Aerosmith, Andrew Golub, joining me today for our conversation with chairman of the Delray Open, Ivan Barron. That conversation coming up right now. Joining us on today's edition of Getting to the Point is a former number one junior in the country, a three-time Kalamazoo champion, a member of the USDA Florida Tennis Hall of Fame, and the chairman of the Del Rey Open, Ivan Barron. Mr. Chairman, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I really appreciate the invite on the, uh, on the call. Thank you. Oh, of course. It is our pleasure. And if I, I'm just saying, if I had the title of chairman, everyone would be directed to call me that. Ah, funny. You know something? I pick up garbage. I do everything. We're a team. It doesn't matter. There's no uh, no egos here. Yeah, well, that's not the case on this podcast. I'm going to box out Mark and Andrew as long as possible to talk to you a little bit about your experiences at the beginning. Um, but because obviously, you know, you have been across the board uh, throughout all of the realms of the tennis world. And, you know, for our listeners who aren't aware of you or about your story, you know, how did you get involved with the game? Let's start there. You know, growing up, I liked every sport. Uh, soccer was my favorite. I played baseball. I played flag football. And I used to go to the tennis club with my buddies. And we used to play tennis, play hoops, football, and just loved it. I started with my mother. She played women's doubles, an amateur player. And she's like, do whatever you want. And fast forward, I just became very good at tennis right away. I was fortunate. I worked hard in everything I did, whatever sport or academic it was. And all of a sudden, after playing two years, I was, I was winning a 10 international tournament in, uh, in New York. Then I'm playing 12s, and all of a sudden, I'm top 10 in the country. Mm-hmm. That's the no. fast story. Yeah, no, I like that. I mean, I'll break it down piece by piece because I promise it'll get better and better from here. Um, But, you know, for you, again, a bunch of success throughout your junior career, uh, things such as multiple Kalamazoo champion uh, across the board uh, success. Is there an inflection point, you know, a moment for you when you started, you decide to take tennis seriously and, you know, focus on it full time? That's a great question. 
I loved all the sports, and it really kind of came down to tennis and soccer. And bless you. And uh, and <laughs> I was playing both for a while. And when I was 11, even 12 years old, still playing soccer, rec, just loved the game. You know, it was good. Uh, not as good as tennis, but um, it came to a point when I was about 12, my father's like, you know, you're really top two in the country in 12 and under. Do you think you still, should still play soccer? And soccer really helped my tennis game with the footwork, the, the mental toughness, the team effort. And it just came a time where I said, you know, I, I want to focus more on tennis. And I was always serious about all the sports. I just wanted to be the best. I would never cheat. I don't care if people ran suicides and they won. I touched every single line. I would do jump ropes when I got home at night when no one knew I was doing jump ropes. So in my mind, I always felt I worked harder than anyone out there. And I was just a smart player. I was tall for my age, which helped. And uh, about 12 years old is when I fully committed to tennis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, that nutrition, the fitness, your commitment to it is something we want to explore later on in this episode. Uh, but I happen to know, as a former tennis player and as someone, you know, invested in the game, there are matches throughout the course of time that stick with you, right? There are moments, uh, whether for you, I'm sure, you've, you know, three Kalamazoo crowns, or it's nice to pick from. Uh, but I'm curious where your matchup with Vimal Patel stands in your all-time tennis history. Wow, Vimal Patel. Uh <laughs> we had some battles growing up. He's a good name. I'll tell you, I I mean, I'd say the one time that I played him that I, I remember was I zoned. I played out of my mind where uh, I believe he beat me at Florida State in the finals because mm-hmm. he lived in Florida. And I, and I played him at Kalamazoo. And I, I almost want to say it was in the semis. And I think I maybe missed two balls. And I think I went 0-2. It was one of those <laughs> where everything worked. He's probably smiling and saying, you know, this is a joke. And uh, that was probably my best uh, best memory of Vimo. He'll probably say uh, say the same thing. Yeah, as far no, as memory, re- but but a beat down. Yeah, no. The reason I asked that because I was you know looking back through your history, I noticed you know with all the junior success, the one thing you didn't get was that elusive Florida State title. Which you know a Florida State title is a gold ball. I feel like they're they're equivalent, right? Yeah, you know something. I never won high school state ever. I was one in the country at 18s. You know, top two really in the country my whole life, and just couldn't win the high school championships. I mean, I you know, I lost to very good players, obviously. You know, these are all top players in the country, but you know, I'll take it. I won Easter Bowl a couple of times, zoo three times, so you know, it wasn't all too bad. Yeah, well, no, I mean, that, that's that's good to know, guys. I'm the only one on the call then that's a Florida State champion, so good. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm the only one who can claim that title. Then, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I have no, a. State- I- I have a state championship in high school at number three, buddy. Well, yeah, that, that definitely doesn't count. <laughs> Good effort, Aerosmith. I still give it to you. It's okay. Yeah. No, I would point out that I am undefeated in Florida high school action uh, as a man from Michigan. So technically, also Congrats. unblemished. Yeah, so I'll join you in that qualification. But, you know, again, for, for you, uh, Ivan, to uh, you know, be the number one player in the country, to win Kalamazoo, you know, three separate titles, to win both the singles and doubles your final year of 18s, get a wild card into the U.S. Open. Uh, what does that do for you in that moment? Because I know ultimately you end up making the decision to go to Georgia, uh, but, you know, winning those caliber of events, getting to play on the biggest stages, does that make you want to focus on the sport more? You know, I never thought I'd play pro tennis, believe it or not. I just loved the game. I just wanted to play tennis, be the best I could. And, you know, if I could ever dream of playing at the U.S. Open, that, that was my goal, just to be there. I mean, even maybe as a spectator. So what happened was, again, I was always doing well. Uh, first year 18s, I win, let's say designated, I win the Easter Bowl. 
Um, the USD national team I was not on for whatever reason, and they already picked their team going to Europe. And after I won the Easter one, I'm like, guys, I'm, not, I'm one in the country. I, I want to go. I've never even been to Europe. And after you know a few phone calls and uh, fun political stuff, they took me to, to uh, Europe to play in the Italian Open, Belgium, and the French Open juniors. I go there, and I'm the only one not wearing a USC national team uh, uniform because I wasn't on the team, which I didn't, didn't care. You know, it was cool to be on it, but wasn't on it. And I go out there, and I win the Italian Open first tournament. So I go from uh, whatever in the world to all of a sudden probably top 30 or 40 in the world. And everyone's like, oh, my God, what the hell's going on? And then a couple weeks later, I play the French Open, and I get to the quarters. And now I'm top 20 in the world ITF. And now the team's going to Wimbledon, and I wasn't on that team. And all of a sudden, I'm like, guys, how can you not take me? I'm the one in the country, top 20 in the world. End of story. I either Maybe got a wild card or whatever. I go to Wimbledon, and I get to the semis. Then I go to Kalamazoo. I win Zoo. I'm now one in the world, ITF, playing the U.S. Open, which is a joke because in my mind that's like you know, only the best in the world, and I'm just you know this kid from Plantation. And I'm like, oh, my God, what if I play Stampers first round at night? All I want to do is get a game. That's all I'm thinking. <laughs> and a story, I win Zoo. I have already signed to Georgia a few months back. I have no idea if I'm turning pro because all the agents are calling because the year before, Tommy Ho won Kalamazoo at 15, and, you know, was a superstar. You know, my nemesis growing up, I think he beat me 10 of 12 times. But I remember the two. And uh, <laughs> and then the uh, and Ivan Lendl just signed with Mizuno. So it was kind of a play on Mizuno wanting me to fly out to Japan to sign with them and turn pro. End of story. I played the U.S. Open because uh, singles, doubles, and mixed doubles. Um, I decided to turn pro. And, uh, and then I played the juniors as well. So in reality, I played all five events uh, at the Open that year, which is kind of cool. And, uh, and turn pro. And... That's, that's how it all happened. I didn't even know it was turning pro, honestly, until probably the day we said, should we do it? We said, yeah, sure, why not? That's really mm -hmm. how it happened. No, I mean, again, when you're having that sort of success, that sort of summer, it feels inevitable, right? I feel like, what, was it a feeling of invincibility? Did you just feel your game was ready to turn pro? You know, I didn't lose to an American all year. I was one ITF after Kalamazoo. And, I mean, I just kept winning. And then now I'm, the agents are calling. It was one of those where it was momentum. So we, we made the decision together where, you know, you could always go back to college. Let's give it a shot. And that was it. So, um, I mean, it's really, that's how we turn pro. You know, it wasn't like an, oh, my God, firework display. It was one of those, after dinner, we called the coach in Georgia. Um, I'm sorry. Oh, my God. I totally, what am I, I'm, I'm totally screwed up. What am I talking about? Sorry. I played, I went to Georgia one year. What am I talking about? I played, I'm totally losing it, guys. But you can read it if you want. It seems oh like a memorable, memorable year at Georgia. Yeah, tell me about it. Okay, I'm going to start over. By the way, when you get to my age, because you all are younger than me, you forget things. So, end of story. I played the U.S. Open. I can't believe I just said that. I played the Open. I said, you know something? I could always go to college or I could turn pro. I said, you know something? Let me go to school at 17 years old. That's what it was. So, I went to school for a year at Georgia. I was an All-American. Um, and I liked it. You know, did I love it? No, I didn't. It was one of those where I was used to growing up with George Paris, who coached Jay Berger, Luanne Spadia, Vince Spadia, where it was always in your face mentality, work your ass off 24-7, and when you throw up, get back on the court and play harder. At Georgia, it was here's about two cans of balls, go out there and work hard. So for me personally, it wasn't the best move. Thus, the year after I played one year at Georgia, I was All-American. I played number three. We finished uh, – we finished number two in the country that year. You know, we had a great year. I said, you know something? I didn't feel my game was where it's supposed to be, and then I turned pro. 
so what I said before, I, I don't know why I said that, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> no, Weird. again, yeah, I, I feel that way at 24. I, I remember I, I cook something, and then I hear the buzzer go off, and I was like, oh, nice, I put that in the oven. Um, but that's just me sometimes being an idiot, I suppose. Anyways, you know, too, you, you sort of mentioned your year at Georgia. You were an All-American there, although I noticed an All-American, but I believe not All-SEC. I don't know how something like that happens. Uh, maybe, you know, honestly, I don't remember the all SEC, uh, you know, Al Parker was one, he was top two or three in the country and Patricio Arnold played two for us. And I think he was ranked higher than Al. Um, so I, I don't know, but I got to the round of 16 at the NC two A's and lost to Palmer, which is what, that's the, uh, all American. Yeah, no, it's a win's a win. And then you go to the U S open, as you mentioned, first round, you match up with uh, Fabrice Santoro. How was it being on that stage? And just how did your game match up in that moment? You know, I actually played Santoro the year I won Kalamazoo before I went to Georgia. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so mm-hmm. um, yeah, so playing Santoro was, I mean, he was very tough, to be honest, for a tough draw. He's 30 in the world. And, you know, I'm a 17-year-old that just won Zoo, you know, and then I went to Georgia after. But the problem was I played him two years earlier in the Orange Bowl, and he absolutely destroyed me 0-2 in the semis or 0-3. I mean, it was, it was, it was a toy fest. So I was nervous as all because, you know, I'm now at the U.S. Open where I, I just want to not make a fool of myself. I'm playing a guy that destroyed me a couple of years ago. And the story, I lost 3-3-4. Three, three, and four. I played pretty good. He just was better. And, uh, and that was it. And then after Georgia turned pro, I actually qualified for the Open a year later and lost to uh, Renzo Furlan in four sets, which I believe in my heart I should have won. I was up two sets to one in a break and just, you know, played like crap, to be honest. And, uh and then played on tour five years. Mm-hmm. No, and it was a delightful five years, I'm sure, for you. Um, but, you know, to, so you, you go, as you mentioned, from college, from these high-level juniors to the pro tour, and then, you know, five years later, instead, you know, you're, you're done with your pro career, but you stay involved with the sport. Uh, what led to that decision? What ultimately leads a guy to becoming, you know, tournament director for the 16s and 18s clay courts and, you know, chairman of the Delray Open? Good question. I... My goal was after I finished playing on tour was to finish my education, number one. You know, our family's education won, everything else is secondary. So I was the, uh, I called really a ton of schools around the country. I wanted to be an assistant college coach, plus teach on the side for some you know, extra money and, and have fun and take a, a full load of classes. After calling all these different schools, some schools had openings, but they, they couldn't offer what I wanted. Uh, I went to FAU, so I still lived at home. Coach was Mike Whelan, a great guy who actually lives in Oklahoma now. Coached there two years as the assistant men's coach, was a head coach of the women's team for a semester because I then graduated. And then, ironically, while I was coaching the women's team, Jay Berger was at University of Miami. Mark Aaron might know this. Called me, Ivan, my assistant's leaving, Tony Bujan. Would you like to go there? And timing's everything because I want to start my master's. So when Jay, who I've known for 30 years, we're very good friends with his family, him and his sisters, went to UM, started my master's, um, my MBA. Coached there two years, and then I kind of knew I was going to be involved with my family company, which is running the Delray Beach Open. Uh, my father's been an entrepreneur his whole life, retired in his 30s, and said, let's do something with tennis. And at UM, I went there two years with Jay, had a great team. You know, Mark, Mark was just an incredible team, camaraderie uh, group of guys. And then said, you know something, it was time. And, uh, and went to work for the company, which is our family company for, God, maybe 18, 19 years now. Nice. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned coaching us at, at UM, which was awesome. Um, we had we had Jay on a couple of weeks ago and discussed 
as you know, how hard we trained, and he actually finally admitted that we probably did a bit too much running. Um, <laughs> but we, we also discussed with him, I mean, some of those days at UM are why Andrew and I talked about starting Aero Bar because we would train really hard and do all the fitness, and, you know, we'd go to play matches, and if we were on a road trip, we'd go into CVS or Walgreens and buy, like, breakfast bars to eat on the court. And mm-hmm, because sure. there, there really, really wasn't anything to eat, you know, how, how, like, when you were a junior and then playing on tour, playing college tennis, what were you eating on the court? I mean, did you have those same problems we did? Yeah, I'll tell you. First of all, yes. I mean, it's one of those where I think it's different today, Mark, because people people eat on court now. They eat those. They, they eat something that gives them energy that that you know, hydrates them as far as drinking maybe, but the eating part, it's more common now than it was before. I remember ages ago, there was power bar. You guys remember power bar? Yeah. That was our only yeah. option. Yeah. I, I, wait, I think the only option, I think I had that and nothing else, maybe a banana. I'm talking yeah. like I didn't eat because probably I didn't know what to eat. Thus, you know, I mean, you know, your creation of this bar, I mean, and all the colleges, you know, buying, buying it for, for the team, you know, I mean, First of all, the, the team's not paying, the college is. And also, I mean, you sent me some for the clay courts you know, a year ago. I mean, they're great tasting bars. So I just didn't have that growing up. Yeah, no, it's something. I mean, you, you've gotten to know um, Logan a bit, who I coach, um, from his success at your tournament. And, I mean, that was – he would never eat breakfast. He wouldn't eat anything on the court. And just having something to eat now has been a, a big thing for him. I mean, I think he played a – three over three hour match in the finals of your tournament last year so it's, mm-hmm. it's been huge you know it's, if it's something you know, that you create that doesn't upset the stomach it gives you the energy it's a home run yeah no we've we've worked hard on it um you also obviously have your involvement with the atp event how would you compare the guys at the atp level with the juniors that you see at your tournament you know from a nutrition and fitness standpoint yeah, I'll tell you the, and I probably should answer more of the question before. We, we run about 25 state, national, international junior tournaments for the last 12 years. We've kind of grown our portfolio, and we love what we do. Love. It's cool because we were there. You know, Mark, you were there. Andrew, you were there. You know, all of us were there that played these high-level events. So seeing anyone from the junior nationals playing there at an ATB event, like Riley Opelka, um, Tommy Paul, uh, even Tiafo, excuse me, I don't know if Tiafo played those, but those two before, Paul and Opelka, I mean, it's just cool seeing them. You know, come to our event. I spoke to Riley a few weeks ago. We interviewed him. Um, but I've known Riley, you know, just indirectly, directly for, you know, four or five years now. And it's great to see a young American coming up through junior tennis, playing at an ATV event and doing well. Even Taylor Fritz. You know, these are guys that you know, we've kind of seen over the years when they were smaller, younger, maybe not as much weight on them. But it's unbelievable now seeing them as young adults, even, you know, young men. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, Ivan, um, you know, you have ran these tournaments for so long, you know, the junior tournaments and the pro tournaments, even, you know, as, as long as when I was a, a junior. Um, the evolution of, of player, the evolution of nutrition in the locker room, behind closed doors, the things they're doing, even from when you played, you know, comparing – comparing the players and comparing even the juniors comparing to what you see from back in the day to now, how big of a difference is it on the fitness and nutrition side? Way more professional now. 
uh, before match, you'll see, you'll see Raonic or Riley or whomever have, let's say, four or five drinks next to them with their maybe their coach or trainer putting some powder in them. You'll see them eating maybe a, uh, a rice before a match, maybe some noodles before a match or a turkey sandwich. But it's just done just different now, which is, which is great. It's more of a business model. It's done. They're, they're like robots. They do the same thing on a, on a match. They do the same thing before a match and after a match whenever they play on tour. I mean, it's done great, whether it's quinoa or you know some kind of noodle or even they sometimes might go to our catering company and give us a box of whatever they eat and they'll make it for them. So it's very regimental. Regimental, excuse me. Yeah. So, so, go ahead, Amber. No, I was going to say, so, you know, how has that evolved for you as a tournament director and the food that you provide? You know, I mean, are, are people being, people are obviously being more specific and more picky with what, with what they want, right? I would imagine. No, absolutely. It's, it's much more health conscious. Uh, we buy a lot more of everything and it's a lot more healthy than we used to. There's a lot more grilled chickens, different kinds of noodles. The pastas are less oily. Uh, vegetables everywhere. The salad dressings have less cream in it. Um, it's amazing. It, it really is. You know, it's nice to see, and you know, we're glad to provide all these items for the players because we want them coming back. You know, we're we're a family company. We uh, we know a lot of the players over the years. We're very close with the agents. You know, we're not a 100-person management firm. You come to Delray. It's casual. It's professional. It's classy and it's intimate. And when the players come in, we walk by. You know, we say, hey. Kyrios or Mike or Bob or you know they do whatever they want they shoot some hoops in the lounge they eat what they want and believe it or not sometimes the players just text me hey can you get a little more of this and we get it for them nice yeah no it's definitely I've been you know I've brought members down to your event and been down at clay courts the last couple of years they're they're run great one of the uh so questions I was going to ask you know you're I know you're involved with the national decisions for clay courts and as a tournament director and hard courts and such. What do, what do you think uh, about, you know, Kalamazoo <laughs> and Orlando this year? Um, you know, it's, yeah, I, I chair the national junior comp committee. Um, the, you know, Mike, Mark Riley actually, who, he's a tournament director of Kalamazoo called me the week before they actually had to cancel their event just to kind of pick my brain on different things because our clay courts were canceled. Um, and it's a huge event for us, for the community, and all these events are very impactful for all the cities and communities they, that they're in. So it's not – we don't take these decisions lightly, and I know the USD doesn't either. Um, it sucks. I'll say it like it is. It's – you know, safety is the number one priority. Myself, I, I didn't want to – I wouldn't travel with my daughter, you know, in, in the month of July. Right now we're not, we're not traveling either. Um, and it's, it's tough. It's – you know, we – the world needs to move on. But they have to do it in a safe way. So, you know, the first national event is the 16s, 18s hard courts, 12s and 14s, as you guys might know, uh, is not going to happen this year. Um, and the four host sites are working together on the best practices for all the players. Um, yeah, I believe Orlando is doing one player, or excuse me, player plus one, one guest only. And if you need yeah. to guest, you just can't come on site. Uh, so, what we've done, we actually are hosting two sectional events in July, in mid-July. And we've received, we've reached out to the Southern section, the Florida section, the USDA, and we've kind of put together our own safety guidelines because the reality is everyone's got to go ahead and work together. I mean, this whole thing, it's just, you know, you're talking about kids and parents, you know, who are traveling with the kids. 
And, you know, sometimes kids want to hang out with other buddies. The, the reality is they can't now. But yet they also want to play tennis. So what you, we go ahead. go ahead. No, I was saying, what, yeah, do you, so, what do you think the draw? What do you think the draw will be like for Kalamazoo? I mean, do you think half of the top players will go a quarter? I'm just curious. Um, you know, I I hope want the parents to do what they're comfortable with. And you know something, if it's the top 50 not being able to play, it's okay. I, th- I think right now it, it's such a different type of world we live in where some people won't go that are ranked high because they're not comfortable. And, I mean, I think it's all right. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, the USC is not forcing players to go. They're offering an opportunity if they feel comfortable. Sure. So, it's, so and, you know, that's how I look at it. And the, and the 12s and 14s, you know, I don't think they need to travel now. You know, they, they haven't played since March. You know, so it's just another event that they're not going to, and it's okay. They can play locally or sectionally. You know, if they want to play tennis, they don't need to travel to a national event. Um, you know, hopefully in the fall, you know, things get a little better, but really it's, I think it's let's take it one month at a time. Sure, and I guess that's a good segue into, you know, U.S. Open. I know you got to speak with Dr. Hainline the other day on your own podcast. What are, what are your thoughts on, on the Open? Yeah, you know, it's, um, I spoke to Dr. Hainline, and I'm actually speaking to Michael Dow, the CEO of the USGA, in a few weeks. Um, Dr. Hainline was great. You know, I even wanted to ask him questions about the NCAA and canceling, you know, the event because you know, he's a stud in the medical world and the sports world. Um, I think, I think, first of all, the U.S. Open is a huge business, and they're doing their best they can to host a major event, which will, which the players want to play. I'd say the majority. I believe 90% plus want to play the Open. So the U.S. Open staff is doing everything in their power to make it safe as possible. And the quarantine for whether it's two weeks or three weeks, the Cincinnati event, you know, moving there so the players can stay in one place, I think is unbelievable. And there are things that all of us have no idea what they're doing just to make this happen. If a player, again, is uncomfortable, don't play. You know, it's okay. But U.S. Open, if they do it the right way, which I believe they will, They'll receive X amount of revenue, which helps all the sections, which helps all the USDA staff, which helps the pros, which helps the juniors. You know, really helps the growth of tennis in the United States. So that's why they're doing everything in their power to make it happen. And they have received, I believe, the blessing from, you know, the governor up in New York. And I think it's going to be cool as hell and different. You know, we're going to watch it on TV. And it's going to be maybe they type in crowd noise. You know, I don't know what they're doing. But, you know, something I think we're all hungry to watch something on, on TV. I think this will be very cool. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, with that in mind, just to follow up on your question, Mark, the uh, what happened this past weekend at the Adria Tour with Novak Djokovic's event and how laxed it was, how it seems like a lot of the precautions that the USTA, the U.S. Open are trying to implement uh, were thrown out the window for that event. How do you think what we saw transpired there affects the plans moving forward? Because you look at the schedule and there are things such as the event for the WTA in Palermo, for the ATP in the City Open. If the goal and the intent is to create this bubble for three weeks to ensure the safety and the health of the players why allow for those additional events beforehand but then at the same time to your point you know you have to weigh the business of tennis against all of that as well right yeah you know anybody that hosts an event has to be responsible for the players the staff and the fans um i think Djokovic was trying to do his best um you know i don't know him personally but i think he was trying to do his best to add you know, some fun things going on it's a newly created event the players wanted to play there were there was i'm sure there were appearance fees involved the money was going to charitable organizations the problem was 
I believe looking back, he wishes he probably did a little bit more social distancing. I just, I, I mean, I'm sure he does. Uh, and I'm sure Korich does. And I'm sure Dimitri does. Um, so I think really it's a learning experience. You know, I hope everyone learns from what Djokovic did. I think he did as well. Uh, you know, the one or two events that he did host, I'm sure, I hope, you know, the funds greatly help all the organizations that they were uh, assisting. But, you know, we're all, in the, we're all learning now. I mean, I sit on a committee in Palm Beach with the Honda Classic director, the VP of marketing for the Polo Global, uh, for Equestrian. And we exchange ideas every two weeks because things change. So I think the Open will learn from every single event, tennis and non-tennis, up until August. And I hope they crush it. And, you know, everyone's learning from each other now. So, um, you know, we're not till February. So we have a long time away. But yet we actually are every day we work on the February event. And we're unsure about 100 different things. Hotels, medical, food, uh, transportation. You know, right now, the U.S. Open is like, you know, how do they transfer players? Is it one player per car? You know, do they put a screen in front of the volunteer? Are there box lunches? Um, I believe you practice and you go home, which is probably uh, what all the you know tennis events that are going to come up are going to do the same thing. Uh, you know, people are not going to be able to stay on site unless they play. So, so, uh, so Ivan, Ivan, you don't think the the uh, the topless, the shirtless dancing in the club was a good idea from Novak? Uh, you know, we're not going to do that. <laughs> yeah. Is that um, not part of the event? Yeah, you know, if they were in one of those big bubble balls, you know, the stage you kind of like walk in, I think that's okay. The, the 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 dancing on stage doing the uh, was it where they go into the bar? I forgot already. Yeah. I, I'm very I'm very good at that. If you recall from yeah. coaching me in college, diving. You you Mark Mark you were very you actually were top two on the team in that. Yes, I would agree with you there. But we're gonna we're gonna pass on that part. <laughs> Might want to skip that. Yeah. No. Yeah, but you yeah. know. Yeah. To that point, and you, you talk about your own events and. You know, you've sort of alluded to it, but, you know, with facts changing every day. And you talked about the fact we hosted a Cracked Rackets Open, and it was only a draw of 64, but you could just see how happy everyone was to be back in that competitive environment and, you know, just to be around their friends once again, the people they see when they're traveling week in, week out. How do, you know, you absorb the data of what's going on at all of these different events and what, you know, try and implement those things in your own events, whether it be, you know, I know Delray already happened this year, but should it be planning for Delray 2021 or, you know, the clay courts if they're played this year, all of these different things? Uh, because you, you're not going to go up to all these kids right, and be like, hey, you got to keep six feet apart. But how do you uh, attempt to sort of regulate what goes on? Okay, great question. We're doing it one event at a time. So mm-hmm. while we always plan for the Delray Beach Open, which I'll get there in a second, we have two events in uh, July. We've created a three-page safety guidelines for the players, and we're going to use what's called a virtual tennis director app that uh, Match Tennis has uh, created. Where instead we don't want any, we don't want kids roaming on site. So what happens is, if you play on site, you check in 15 minutes early, or early before your match, no earlier. And when they come to the tournament desk. Everyone's got to wear a mask on site. And we're going to have cones separated between uh, 8 and 10 feet away from each other, marked off. So we're going to know exactly who plays who. We're going to put a can of balls for each player next to the cone. And each player gets to use their own balls for their match so they don't have to touch the other player's tennis balls. When they're done, they report the score. We want them to ring their own chairs, by the way, on court if they have them. If not, obviously, we have chairs which will clean throughout the day. Um, They come report the score. They must leave the site within 20 minutes. So they check in actually through their phone and then they come on site 15 minutes before their match. 
So there's a lot of you know unique things we're doing that we've learned from other sections, from other sports. Um, the, the use of two cans of balls, it's more more expensive for us, but we're doing it the right way, we believe. We want, I mean, people want to play tennis. You know, they want to get out there. People need to move on. So I think we have a, now a new norm, a new world, and we're going to do the best we can to provide a safe environment so the kids can have fun because that's all they want. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And, you know, again, to sort of follow up on that, because you mentioned a lot of different precautions and measures that will be put in place. And, you know, I think another thing we've all learned throughout this period is how difficult the finances are for so many uh, different events, different interests in tennis right now, especially given the global nature of the sport. This is a global pandemic. It affects all aspects, all of the federations and whatnot. And so, you know, you've read throughout this time period, uh, this idea of if tournaments are to come back, they're going to have to be fanless and for the u.s open that's okay because their tv rights their deals are in the hundreds of millions of dollars but for tournaments such as del rey or you know i guess suppose del rey was already played this year but you know 250 events or wta international events uh the idea of playing f- events without fans when that's where the majority of revenue is generated for i would say most of the events and you know correct me if i'm wrong is that a feasible thing if say it's april 2021 or march 2021 and Delray 2021 is coming around the corner is playing without fans something that tournaments can feasibly financially do very few can it's a great question and it's a scary question because tv for the 250s are not as large obviously as the grand slams um it's a it's a a very scary thought It's it's a great question um we hope we don't have to go there but uh and we're gonna do whatever it takes safety wise to not um we actually have different options of six feet apart three feet apart 10 feet apart and everything's fine and what's tough is you know we have series tickets that go out six months prior so what we're doing is we're going to have our series tickets go out uh, like everything's okay and because it feels like every week is a month we're going to track everything and if we have to call every single person back a series holder or a sponsor to let them know we're moving their seats or things are changing, I think 99% will understand. I really do because of what's going on. So, you know, it's, it's a great question. Um, you know, thank goodness we, we held our event, which was, you know, one of our top three in our history uh, this past February. I feel horrible for all the other events that did not take place, tennis and non-tennis. Um, but we're now looking at, like every other event, every single line item is going to be revisited everything whether yeah. i don't care what it is signs tv transportation everything because of what's happened yeah no it's the new reality we are all going to have to function within and you sort of mentioned it, if tennis wants to complete compete on the global market with other sports it has to come back and so whatever mechanisms that need to be put in place to ensure it can be safe and you know with the safety and health not just of the players but the tournament organizers any participant the fans in the event uh, that's going to be essential as well and you know I do want to talk about your Delray event in in particular and some of the things you have seen over the years but just to linger on this topic 
topic a little bit longer because again, uh, you know, it's so hard to plan moving forward. And you talk about weeks, you know, mo- weeks being months, months feeling like years. It was only months ago when we heard things such as ATP and WTA merger talks being discussed, and you know, player relief funds. That was you know a big topic, and obviously, it's still an issue for so many players. But as someone who has been in, invested in tennis at so many different levels, you, you talk about the need to work together. How difficult is it to work together amongst tournament directors? And, you know, we had uh, Bob Moran on yesterday who was running the event in Charleston, of course, and he mentioned the same thing as well. So curious your thoughts, uh, because there are so many competing interests, right? Different federations, different tournaments, different tours. Uh, how difficult, you know, is that part of the reason it's so hard to get things done in tennis? You know, personally, from, from our tournament, it's not hard because we simply work with ATP and player agents. So there's really nothing else we work with. So it's, there's zero difficulty. Um, what you mean as far as maybe mergers and WTA events with ATP events, that's kind of a different ball game. That's not really – that doesn't really affect us too much, I'd say, just because we're a 250 event, men only. We're on – you know, obviously we're an ATP 250. Um, we have our date. We've been – we're 29 years old. Uh, so it's, it's a great question, but it really doesn't affect us too much. Um, maybe some of the bigger players, example, like the ATP and the ITF, when they're going over Davis Cup dates and the Grand Slam dates and 500 dates and Olympic dates, that's a different ballgame. Yeah, that's not easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I guess the reason I ask the question is because, you know, let's say tennis is unable to come back in 2020, and hopefully that's not the case, but then they open up the 2021 season, and let's say things are ready to go by January, by February. Again, you know, knock on wood that this is the scenario. Will they stick to the regular scheduling norms? I feel like we've seen as tournaments try to rush to get on the schedule this year in 2020. I mean, you feel pretty comfortable. Delray is locked into its weekend. I believe, excuse me, the 2021 calendar will stay exactly the same as this year. There's no reason to change it. Uh, if an event cannot afford to host an event without fans, I believe they won't host the event. And they'll wait until next year. Some businesses might not be able to, to hold their event next year. You know, they might not just because, you know, if you lose one year of income, I mean, people could go out of business. Uh, so, you know, I don't, I don't really see any changes in the calendar. I really don't, unless events aren't able to host next year because of what happened this year, which, which no. would absolutely stink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there are, again, so many moving pieces. That's why it's so, uh, it's tough. But, you know, one thing tennis fans did get to enjoy this year was your event, the uh, 2020 Delray Beach being played, won by Riley Opelka, if memory served me correctly. It was a doubleheader championship Sunday, semifinals in the morning, championship at night. And, you know, Delray Beach, as you mentioned, I think it's 32 years now strong uh, that the tournament's been going. And, you know, so many great events over the course of your uh, time there. You mentioned your thoughts on this year's event how was that championship sunday awesome one word i mean mm-hmm. riley stepping up to beat roundish in three sets and you know i've known jay forever i mean since i was 10 you know i played with his sisters when i was 11 so seeing jay in the players lounge where you know it's quiet on the final day you, know, you want to get to the final day where no one's around you know, jay's in the players lounge with riley um you know he's got a double header which and his opponent doesn't you know the player who he beat in the finals nishoka uh, he's sitting there hoping round and Chopelka is five hours. So Riley, and it's hot. Riley has a tough three-setter. 
Brownwich obviously is a super stud. Beats him. Now he's got to play a guy who's a counterpuncher who's beyond fast, which is the one guy you don't want to play after a long reset with Brownwich. So I believe Jay told me, he said, you know, Riley, it's a junior tournament. Think of it like juniors, you play two matches a day. It's not a big deal. Let's play one at a time, and we'll see what happens. And the way he won it, because, I mean, he looked tired in that second match in the finals, and he, he won it, and, you know, he's, he's classy. He doesn't go nuts. You know, I wanted him to throw the racket in the stands, rip his shirt off, you know, run in the stands, <laughs> give Jay a, a bear hug. You know, he didn't do that. He just kind of raised his hands in the air, and, you know, Jay's in the crowd. He's not doing anything either. You know, they're both so, you know, low-key and, uh, and quiet, but it was great. I mean, you know, it was just I'm very happy for him. You know, he's a young stud, U.S. tennis needs young Americans to start, you know, making a second week of the Open and doing well. And, you know, we're hoping Riley's one of them. And, I mean, he has the game to be top 10, which is great. Mm-hmm. No, I completely agree with you there. I mean, for someone to move like that at his size and just have the baseline skills he does already, uh, you feel like his serve can still get 15% better as well, which is just a scary prospect. So I completely agree with you there. Uh, but how does that compare to seeing an 18-year-old Kei Nishikori take home the title? That was cool. I, You know, I remember walking Kay, who was a qualifier, to a party upstairs, and he had broken English. And, you know, I think he won his first round. I maybe took him to a ladies' luncheon or whatever it was, some kind of special event. And, you know, no one knew who this kid is. So I'm walking him from the lounge to this VIP area. And I said, you know something? I go, you know, you qualified, you won a round, just enjoy the moment. One match at a time. So maybe he he owes his whole career to me from that walk. What do you think? (laughs) Agreed. You know, I did the math and that checks out. Yeah. No, I agree. I'm still waiting for that phone call. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, that's no. It's all fair, complete. I mean, he's not the only one, right? There was a young Leighton Hewitt in '99, also a, t- a title winner in Delray. Mm-hmm. Wow! Wow! Todd Martin, you got uh, you're going way back. That's kind of cool. Yeah, Todd Martin '93, all college battle. Him and David Wheaton. Yeah, no, there have been some incredible matches for sure. And you know, you, you my, I guess my last question on this topic, you mentioned it being day to day and. Uh, you know, in terms of what's going on with COVID-19 and the circumstances for the 2021 uh, Delray Open. But for you guys at this point, I mean, one of my favorite times of the year, you know, it's, you know, Delray time when you see that Porsche on the tennis court just sitting there so beautifully. Uh, How are you feeling about the state of your event right now? You know, I'll tell you, we're very fortunate. We have the city of Delray Beach as our title sponsor, and we have Vitacost.com as our presenting sponsor. And we have great relationships with both. Um, you know, they're multi-year agreements, and that's where an event starts. After that, then we have more sponsors. We call the agents. We get the players. And because of really our, our solid base with our two large sponsors, and really, we're, I mean, we're, we're a family event. We call the agents and go, hey, guys, you know, Nick Kyrgios, he has to play our event. Why not? We're, you know, he's in Delray. You're a mile from the beach. Let's do it. You know, our goal is, you know, we want Roger, Rafa, and Djokovic. Um, I believe in my heart we're going to get them. When? Who knows? You know, I mean, we have a Legends event on opening weekend. I would love if Roger can't play our event on tour and he plays our Champions Tour Legends event, I would love to have him on opening weekend. So, you know, we've done well. We have a niche. We have a very intimate site. And... uh you know, we're, we, we're always at a solid 60,000-plus spectators. You know, market, like you said before, it comes down there. You know, we, 
you, you see players walking around like it's nothing. They go to the food court and grab something to eat. So <laughs> we're pretty stoked about you know what our plans are this year with what we believe will happen. And you know if things don't go 100% great, we're going to have a great event with half the audience. And we'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of the audience, I, I'm going to throw in one more uh, because I know this year you guys had the exhibition event with Coco Golf prior to the tournament, or maybe it was uh, that championship weekend. I don't remember which one it was, but how, you know, seeing the reception for her, the sold-out crowd, what was that event like? Incredible. The atmosphere was uh, my brother and my associate sit on a committee with Coco's grandmother. She lives in Delray. It's a very small community. You know, Delray Beach is not Fort Lauderdale or Miami. Um, and when we were speaking to their agent about Coco playing the event, we said, guys, you know, this, this, this is really a team effort. You know, we want to give Delray Beach this, this really what we thought was a home run Saturday night. And we were able to work it out with her playing Stella, um, who's the number one player from University of Miami, who had to, I mean, I was talking to UM, I mean, a dozen times because we had to get approval from the NCAA, uh, the conference, the school, the AD. I mean, it was, it was crazy. It was harder to get, almost get Stella to Coco, um, but it was just it was an, it was an, an unbelievable night because they had a great match. The crowd was so into it, and Coco, I mean, she is like she's a goddess. She, she for her age, I, I mean, I have no idea. She she walks around. She's a thirty year old. She is so mature, so classy. Speaks beyond I and mean, better than I speak. And after the match, she signed hundreds and hundreds of autographs. People were crying. I mean, literally, we kind of had barricades. We made sure that Coco stayed, you know, with them, their, their team. She stayed for, I don't know, maybe an hour. And after the match, after the autographs, I'm talking hundreds and hundreds stayed. And we had thousands there. Um, we actually had to pull, police had to pull people back. And then after they were in the basketball, uh, they were playing basketball in a player's lounge, doing TikTok videos. We were all playing basketball with them. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was ridiculous. It was like, I go you know, to the father, I'm like, Coco's my daughter's age. My daughter's age. I'm like, I cannot even imagine my daughter playing in front of 6,000 spectators. You know? How would you, how would you compare that atmosphere to Jay Berger's one appearance at your, at your cha- tournament in the Champions event? You know, Jay's a stud. I don't know, I'm not going to lie. I think the environment was a little better with Coco. <laughs> I, I have uh, never, Ivan, I have never seen somebody more scared than him a couple hours before playing that match when you talked him into subbing for Frickstein or whoever he subbed for. Yeah, Jay, Jay's great. It's, uh, you know, I mean, Jay's a class act. Jay, I, I can't say anything negative about Jay. Um, you know, I, we come from the same coach. We work our off, period. There's no excuses. You have an excuse, walk away. And going back to the Coco, seriously, it was an incredible night where the stars aligned. We gave Delray Beach what they wanted to see a superstar in the making. And, I mean, if I could give her a grade, she was an A with two pluses. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah, no, she always is. Well, again, uh, we want to give a big thank you to you for taking the time to chat with us today, Ivan. Uh, obviously, you know, good luck as we wish you continued success with the Delray Open, with the National Clay Courts and everything you do. And, you know, USTA Florida Tennis Hall of Fame, it's justified because, you know, from top to bottom, you have been a part of uh, tennis for such a long time, giving your life to the sport. So thank you so much for all you do. Obviously, stay safe, stay healthy, and, you know, you're always welcome back on the show. Actually, do you want to let our listeners know where they I can hear your show you know i appreciate that the uh, well first thank you again for the invite you guys you're, you're keeping tennis in the limelight in the public eye so kudos to you uh we do a dbo live instagram series every wednesday at 4 p.m um next week we have lou brewer with the usda uh, director for youth tennis 
And then uh, in a few weeks, we do have the CEO for the USDA, Michael Dows. Um, and then we have the UTR, uh, I believe, VP Stephen Amitraj coming up in a couple of weeks as well. So yeah, thank you for the invite. Uh, and just you know, be safe. Thanks, Ivan. Thanks, Ivan. Good talk to you. You guys, Andrew, everybody's great. You guys are awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks, Ivan. Take, Take care, care, buddy. Hope you listeners enjoyed another edition of Getting to the Point, our episodes with our friends from Aerobar. And again, big shout out to Mark and Andrew, as well as our guest today, Ivan Barron, for taking the time to join us. And again, you know, the Delray Open, one of my favorite events on the ATP schedule. So it was great to get to talk to him. Appreciate his candidness in talking about the financial difficulties facing so many tournaments. Uh, It's an excellent perspective. So hopefully you listeners learned as much from this conversation as I did, uh, certainly in Ivan, and I say this lovingly, again, huge thank you for him for taking the time for chatting with us, uh, might be the only guy who can talk faster than me and get more uh, legitimate words out. I get coherent sentences on a word-by-word, minute-by-minute basis, second-by-second, really, basis. Uh, so bravo to him. I've never been outwitted in that sort of sense, and I think I just was for the first time. Uh, so hopefully all of you listeners enjoyed the show. Again, if you want to learn more about our friends at Aerobar, go to aerobar.com. You're going to want to order yourself up a case of bars because they're this is the perfect way to start your day. Again, I'm going to get them to agree to using that. Um, but, you know, perfect way to start your day, aerobar.com. Get 15% off by using our promo code CRACKED15. It'll also let them know that we sent you there. Uh, so, aerobar.com, promo code is CRACKED15. And as I mentioned at the top, I listed all the podcasts, so I won't go through them again. But, CRACKED Interviews, Great Shot Podcast, this podcast, our Inside Out podcast, we're rocking and rolling on all fronts. Great guests, week in, week out people like from the media world, whether it be the Ben Rothenbergs, Mark Lucero's of the world, coaches, Ashley Fisher, uh, of course, Ross Wilson. Uh, we also had, you know, players such as Oliver Crawford, Sam Riffis, Dennis Kudla, Mitchell Kruger, Bethany Maddox-Sands, Monica Pui, so many more. So be sure to go like, rate, subscribe, review if you haven't already. Share it with your friends. Be sure, again, uh, let us know what you think of the episodes. We would love to do a mailbag episode if we get enough listener questions sent to us. So feel free to slide us those in the DMs at Crack Rackets on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Great Shot Pod if you want to send them to me directly. Shout out, as always, to to the super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, who have a f- of an editing job to do day in, day out. And by the way, they continue to kill it on our YouTube channel as well. So you don't want to miss anything from Hit and, uh, hit and One, uh, Overserve, CR Classics, interviews we do over uh, the over the computer. I'm losing the... Th- Sorry, I, I forgot what it was called. You know, the videos we do over video is what I was going to say. And I was like, that's not right. Uh, but leave that all in. The videos we do with our guests, Bethany Maddox-Sands, Monica Puy, Jay Aragona, you want to see their smiling faces. You can find all those videos on YouTube, and you can find all of our content by tuning in to crackedrackets.com. But with that being said, huge shout out again to our friends at Midwest Sports. Go to MidwestSports.com, use the promo code CR15, go to aerobar.com, use the promo code CRACKED15. But for my wonderful co-hosts, Mark Aerosmith, Andrew Golub, our guest, Ivan Barron, our super producers, Max Ligner and Daniel Westoff, our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar, and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say, folks, that's the break, and we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.